0: You know, credit to Justice Lito. I think it's a ten out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many good things about his opinion. He goes through every conceivable basis for a right to an abortion in the Constitution and just dismantles mm-hmm. that. You know, we talk about the history. Just uh, he mentions that the history cited in Roe was either wrong or irrelevant, mm-hmm. uh, and it's so mm-hmm. nice uh, for that to be corrected because that's been mm-hmm. a longstanding sort of uh, annoyance and frustration of the pro life movement is the history mm-hmm. in Roe was just wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes through every basis. He walks through start decisis and shows why it's not compelling. Um, he gives uh, the standards rational basis review, the same that applies to every other law, every other area of the law that's not uh, regulated by the Constitution the states are allowed uh, through the normal democratic processes uh, to work through. Um, and as Justice Ginsburg said, Roe halted that process by us- usurping uh, the judicial, or excuse me, the, the democratic role um, and arrogating that. Uh, the to the judiciary. Um, one of my favorite things about Justice Alito's opinion is that he notes that 55 percent of women voters, uh, of voters in Mississippi are women. And so now those women actually have a say <laughs> um, in what the abortion policy is uh, in Mississippi. And so that's a huge one for democracy.
1: Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And boy, do we have another special episode for you guys. I've started saying that we are the most unreasonably well-guested podcast in Washington, and I stand by that because we have a a really, really special guest today. Um, I think the first long-form interview she's done about this topic uh, we had on today Aaron Hawley, uh, who is a senior counsel with the appellate team at Alliance Defending Freedom, intimately involved with uh, this Dobbs case and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But before I get to the rest of that, as always, make sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything American Moment is working on to help train, uh, identify, credential, educate the next generation of conservative staff who share our priorities about strong families, a sovereign nation, and prosperity for all. Uh, We have tons of programs going at all times. Right now, our Fellowship for American Statecraft is going on, but if you'd like to apply for a future round of that, you can always um, uh, sign up for the interest list. We have AM Fridays, which are our intern trainings happening every Friday at Monocle Restaurant. Um, You can uh, sign up at AmericanMoment.org slash AM Fridays if you'd like to be getting the invitations for that. We have like 150, 160 people competing for just 70 spots every week. So it's a little bit of a rat race, but um, still worth uh, putting your your hat in the ring and trying to get in. We uh, just wrapped, I think, week five of AM Fridays. And so we've got um, five more to go, so you can still hear from fantastic speakers like john allen gay like david goldman um like zach graves and and many others people who've been a guest on this podcast people who hopefully will be on this podcast at some point point. Um, and you can uh look at the backlog of this podcast we have well over 60 episodes at this point over a hundred hours of incredible content with guests that have taken time out of their schedule to put together basically evergreen episodes that uh, are really worth uh, and uh, worth it and stand up to the test of time Um, if you're uh, a staffer for a member of Congress and you think your boss can handle the hour in the chair then uh, then send them our way and we'll uh, we'll we'll think about whether or not to um, to interview them too we've had some fantastic interviews with uh, politicians uh, lately. And so we're, we're looking forward to doing more of that later this year. But enough with that. Today we had on Aaron Morrow Hawley, who serves as the senior counsel to the appellate team at Alliance Defending Freedom. Before joining ADF, Hawley practiced appellate law at Kirkland & Ellis LLP, Bancroft LLP, King & Spaulding LLP, all in Washington, D.C. Hawley has litigated extensively before the United States Supreme Court, as well as numerous federal courts of appeals and state courts of last resort. She has also worked at the Department of Justice, serving as counsel to Attorney General Michael Mukasey. As an academic, Hawley served as an associate professor of law at the University of Missouri, where she taught constitutional, Litigation, federal income tax, tax policy, and agricultural law. She also taught constitutional law as a senior fellow at the Kinder Institute for Constitutional Democracy. Her scholarship focuses primarily on federal courts and has been pu- published in numerous top journals. Holly's a frequent commentator on legal issues. Her work has been quoted or featured in The Washington Post, U.S. News, USA Today, Fox News, The Washington Examiner, The Legal Times, and The Hill, among others. Holly's also written a book on motherhood entitled Living Beloved Lessons from My Little Ones About the heart of God. Uh, Holly is a former law clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John G. Roberts and Justice J. Harvey Wilkinson of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. She received her bachelor's degree in animal science from Texas A&M University and her law degree from Yale Law School, where she served as a Coker Fellow in constitutional law on the Yale Law Journal. Holly is an active member of the Missouri and District of Columbia Bars and is admitted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court and various federal courts of appeals. Her and her husband, Senator Josh Holly, also have a fantastic podcast um, that they host together. Uh, about their family and life and um, uh, their faith and, and many other topics. Um, what'd you think about all that, Nick?
2: <laughs> it was a really amazing episode. You know, while I was listening to you read the bio, I realized we never came back to the animal science. <laughs> I had like so many animal science yeah. questions. Well, uh, it was it was a
1: touchy subject for me because she went to A&M and I didn't want our burgeoning friendship to be damaged by that. Uh, okay. <laughs> As a longhorn, right. you know, it was, it, was, it was very unfortunate. Yeah, no,
2: I think, I think, you know, what's so impressive about Mrs. Holly is, you know, you'll find a lot of politicians, spouses, um, men and women come to D.C. and they get these like sinecures, you know, I think most famously with Dr. Jill Biden, uh, <laughs> who, who you know, teaches at what it's some like community college or whatever. Um, and what's so amazing to me is she's kind of forged her own path here and has now been a part of certainly the 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 biggest Supreme Court decision of our generation. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a that is a huge accomplishment. And they are. I've listened to their podcast, by the way. It's very good. I really like it. Um, They're just incredible people. And I feel honored to have had her on the show.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. Uh, we'll go now to the episode. Uh, you guys uh, listen to every second of it. It's it's fascinating. Uh, she's a true professor. She's great at explaining these these really complicated concepts. And uh, we learned a lot. And we think you will, too. We'll go now to Aaron Holly. Ms. Holly, thank you for coming on the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: We always like to hear how our guests got to the point where they are today. And uh, you're celebrating a lot of momentous victories over these last few weeks. But but tell us the story of of how you got to the point where you're involved in everything that you're involved in.
0: So it really is one of those sort of only God could have done this. Um, I grew up on a ranch in northeast New Mexico and had always wanted to be a veterinarian. So went to Texas A&M, obtained an animal science degree, and it turns out I'm squeamish.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That would do it.
0: Yeah, so that does not bode well (laughs) for being a veterinarian. Um, And I'd always been interested in the law. I think particularly growing up in uh, New Mexico, there are a lot of regulations that impact farmers and ranchers and just seeing how those regulations are made, if it's at the administration agency level or Congress um, was really fascinating because they impacted people I knew deeply. Um, So went to law school, um, ended up really enjoying it and becoming more aware at law school um, of also the religious liberty uh, impacts uh, that um, both the administrative state and also Congress, state governments, local governments uh, can have on religious adherence. So that became very important. Um, I ended up clerking. I clerked on the Fourth Circuit uh, for Judge Harvey Wilkinson um, and clerking for anyone that's in law school, definitely do it. Um, It is a fantastic opportunity to work. Usually there's three or four law clerks um, in a chambers with a judge. You get to work uh, on incredibly interesting cases uh, with someone who is almost always an excellent legal reasoner and writer uh, with fantastic colleagues. Um, So clerked on the Fourth Circuit for Judge Wilkinson, uh, then went on to clerk on the Supreme Court uh, for Chief Justice Roberts, um, who I respect immensely. Um, Actually clerked, as you may know, with my husband, uh, Josh, uh, so that was an added unexpected yeah. benefit. Um, and were
1: you guys married already at that point? No, or that's, no. that's where you met. Yeah.
0: Well, we we'd met in law school, but not not hadn't known one another very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we ended up clerking for the chief justice actually shared an office. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. the chief's assistant credited herself with our, our marriage. She was the one who did the office arrangements. <laughs> yeah. um, but but love that year. And again, clerking at the Supreme Court is just a, a tremendous opportunity to get to work for an institution, a part of government and mm-hmm. see um, how it is. Is that the, the law comes into being uh, to see, you know, how judges are faithful or, or maybe not so faithful sometimes to statutory text into the yeah. Constitution. Um, and from there, went and worked for a number of different law firms. Um, I had the chance, again, to work with really um, just impressive attorneys and sort of an unsolicited career advice is just work for the best person you can. Yeah. Um, there's nothing like um, being able to learn from someone who's, you know, at the top of his or her profession. Uh, so I had the chance to do that for, for a number of years. I also taught at the University of Missouri. Um, taught everything from agricultural law uh, to federal tax um, to constitutional law and litigation Um, and then um, while we were at the University of Missouri, my husband and I had two kiddos, so they're nine and seven now, two boys Um, and then we've uh, split our time now between Northern Virginia uh, and Missouri Um, had our third child Um, I'm still teaching some, uh, working at at a large law firm and got to thinking, you know, what really matters Um, you know, I've only got so much time I wanted to spend a lot of time with my family so I've only have so much time to devote to uh, sort of litigation. And what is it that I can be doing that will make a difference? Um, so ended up joining Alliance Defending Freedom. Had long been familiar uh, with their religious liberty work. I think they won an outrageous number of cases at the Supreme Court on really important issues. And it's just been amazing to be able to, to help with those cases.
1: Tell us a little bit more about what ADF does more broadly. I think if I were to put it in one sentence, it's like it is the white shoe law firm for social conservatives. So basically, <laughs> it's and it's it's massive. But, but what's the kind of scope of the work that they do? And and what specifically mm-hmm. were were you uh, working on while you were there?
0: Absolutely. So Alliance Defending Freedom um, has been around for a long time. Um, and as, as you said, has sort of been the standard bearer for nonprofit law firms uh, that are defending religious liberty. They have a number of different teams. Um, they work a lot on school choice issues. They have a life team uh, that was really involved in the Dobbs case. I know we're going to talk about. Um, they have a legislative team um, that helps states out with pro-life or pro-school choice uh, legislation. Um, they uh, litigate a lot of conscience cases. Um, they currently have the 303 creation case pending before the Supreme Court. And this is the case that involves um, a website designer, Lori Smith. Um, And Lori Smith is a committed Christian. Uh, She wants to make wedding websites, um, but wants to do so only consistent with her faith. And the state of Colorado actually told her with the Tenth Circuit agreeing that if you are going to make a wedding website with your own creations, with your own designs, with your own words, you have to make it for same-sex couples in addition uh, to traditional marriage. And so this this idea of compelled speech, which is Mm -hmm. something the Supreme Court has been really clear on, everyone has a right to to their individual beliefs and also to speak um, uh, consistent with those beliefs. So there's a lot of really important issues ADF has been involved in
1: hmm it's
2: amazing colorado just can't leave people alone can they <laughs> no, like that they- no
0: poor mr phillips <laughs> yeah. yes
2: well and it's amazing too like i think it's so especially these days with how divided everyone is it's so infrequent that someone will stand up for the little guy yes. that's getting yeah. you know punished for standing up for the things that they mm-hmm. believe in and doing the work that they want to do um it's really rare to have someone on your side i don't know it's yeah. kind of it's kind of refreshing well and, and adf is is not apologetic about who they're trying to defend either.
1: I mean, there's a lot of law firms that would, you know, be squeamish about the fact, oh, we're defending Christians, we're defending social conservatives. No, no they, they they don't care. And that's why I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know every single person I know over there. Um, I'm curious, you know, you've been in all of these, um, the, the, the top of the legal profession at every stratum, whether it was the law schools you went to, teaching um, and, uh, and then clerking, let's take the precedent of Roe v. Wade and and maybe the the basket of sort of ridiculous precedents that were established mostly in the 20th century. What is the law profession at the highest level's view of those cases? what, What- Role do those cases play in their imagination? Um, because with mm-hmm. the hysteria we've been seeing in the last yes. few weeks, I think that's a an underrated story. How how mm-hmm. permanent these things feel in their mind?
0: You know, I think that's a really good point, and it's it's sort of a contentious point because those of us that have studied Roe, um, as you both really know know well, I should say, um, is there? There's no question Roe was wrongly decided. Um, if you look to even liberal pro abortion scholars at the time Roe was decided, you know, John Hart Ely said that. Roe um, was not constitutional law at all and barely gave any sense of an obligation to try to be. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, Larry Tribe has been really critical. Justice Ginsburg has been really critical of Roe. And so it's hard to find a serious legal scholar who will say Roe was rightly decided. But uh, you're absolutely correct um, that it's become sort of this this super precedent, as uh, some people would say, uh, in the eyes of a lot of people. And I actually had a debate with a Columbia law professor last fall. And it was so interesting because the professor is pretty, you know, very well respected, pretty middle of the road. He'd actually worked for the Reagan Justice Department when they asked the Supreme Court to overrule Roe in Casey and during that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, so he said, you know, I don't disagree with a lot of your arguments, but the Supreme Court will never overrule Roe. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, a couple of months later, uh, the court did just that. So I think for a lot of people in the legal academy and the legal profession, the idea of overruling Roe was just unthinkable.
1: Are you a congressional office with interns this summer or an intern yourself looking to learn more about the America First agenda? Then you need to participate in AM Fridays, a brand new program by American Moment designed to teach young staff in D.C. the basics of what it means to be America First. Over the course of the summer for 10 weeks, American Moment has rented out the top floor of the Monocle restaurant in Washington, D.C., and we'll be bringing in speakers from across the conservative movement to talk about issues from immigration to trade to foreign policy to innovation to how to support the family and much more. If you'd like your interns to participate in this program, email info at AmericanMoment.org with the subject line AM Fridays, and we'll be sure to add them to the list. Put that against the, the entire basket of uh, of precedents that that are weren't anything to do with constitutional law at all. I mean, w- what is the sense that you get culturally that, that elite academics and lawyers think about whether it's originalism or mm-hmm. conservative views of the law more broadly? Um, are they contemptuous of it? I mean, how, how does it play in their, in their psychology?
0: I think there certainly is some some contempt for originalism. This idea that you can be wedded to a theory uh, that goes back um, to the 18th century and really take that seriously. I think there is a little bit of contempt. Um, I've been grateful to see. You know, Justice Scalia had a profound effect on the law. Um, Justice Kagan, in one of her tributes to him, noted that we are all originalists now. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you read the Dobbs uh, dissent, <laughs> that's not necessarily obvious. Um, but I think it is true that that post Justice Scalia, we are in a world. World where the court and federal judges must take the text seriously. Mm. A- and this cannot be overstated. Its importance cannot. Because if we are in a world of a living constitution, we are in a world where judges can impose their own policy preferences, you know, regardless of their very well-meaning views. If you are not wedded to text uh, and to original meaning, then federal judges have the ability to make common law. And, mm. and that means that unelected judges rather than uh, we, the people, are deciding these issues.
2: Well, and I think that's what we saw. with And we talked a little bit about this with uh, with Josh Craddock a couple mm-hmm. episodes ago um, about how the liberal descent was very much not rooted in mm-hmm. like these are in the Constitution yeah. you know these rights um, it was very much kind of a, a present-day current mm-hmm. thing the perspective arc of
0: history like, uh, yeah <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah, it,
2: yeah. It, it, it feels like a lot of it was uh, was kind of made up but I you know, we spent a lot of that episode talking about Roe v. Wade specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people, of course, like Twitter is not a place for nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, so so a lot of people are missing uh, where this uh, overturning of the precedent actually comes from in this case, mm-hmm. um, in the Dobbs case. Yes. Um, so can you tell us a little bit mm-hmm. more? Explain it to us, explain it to our listeners about yeah. what the case was, yeah. what ADFs and your involvement was in the case?
0: Sure, absolutely. To talk specifically first about the overturning of the precedent. So what the majority opinion written by Justice Alito decided um, was that the Constitution, nowhere in its text, structure, or history contains a right to an abortion. Um, And this is interesting because the Casey plurality, three justices, never went back and actually addressed the question of whether Roe was rightly decided. So Justice Alito does that, and he looks very closely at the three possible bases uh, for a right to an abortion. He looks at the Equal Protection Clause, he looks at the Right to Privacy, uh, and he looks at the Liberty Clause. Um, the Liberty Clause is what most people have focused on, and the Liberty Clause um, it doesn't, of course, explicate uh, what rights might be included. So again, in those situations, we have to be really careful that judges are, are bounded by something mm-hmm. um, so that their you know, biases and just unconscious preferences, policy preferences, don't come through. Uh, so what the court has required is that in order for for a liberty interest to be protected by the 14th Amendment, it has to be deeply rooted in our nation's traditions and history. And so Justice Alito catalogs the history and he says, look, there's absolutely zero evidence of a deeply rooted right to an abortion. He looks at the common law. Abortions were unlawful, to the common law, they were criminal after quickening. Um, in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was passed, it varies a little bit, but, but depending on your source, but approximately 30 out of 37 states criminalized abortion. Um, three, no one disputes that three quarters, rather, of the state's criminalized abortion at the time period. And, and none of the state's guaranteed a right to an abortion. So mm-hmm. there's just zero historical evidence. Um, so just, Salido says, in light of that, um, there's no right to an abortion. Um, and stare decisis, um, which is the idea that even if a case is wrong, um, then uh, it's just better that it stands. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a funny example of stare decisis. Uh, my first year of law school, um, my property professor was a bit nutty, and he He, um, there were way too many students in the class. Um, So students were literally sitting on the steps uh, in this huge classroom. And so he comes in the first day and he didn't want any squabbling over seats. So he says, you each have a property right in your seat. (laughs) 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 He says, I don't care what you do. You can sell it. You can give it away. You can trade for notes. You can trade for pizza. uh, Cold beer doesn't matter. Um, But uh, we're not, you know, and and his point was sort of the starry decisis point. Sometimes it's really good just that the law be settled um, and that way people can order their affairs. Um, And Justice Alito really uh, explained why that's not true in Roe. Uh, First, it has egregiously harmed the nation. Um, It has disallowed states from protecting life, even at the standpoint of Mississippi's 15-week law. Um, Babies at that point can open and close their hands. Uh, They have uh, eyes and eyelids. Uh, They can hiccup and they can quite likely feel pain. And yet the lower court said, nope. You can't protect them under row. As Alito said, it's also damaged the democratic process. It's damaged the court. um, And there aren't the concrete reliance interests that we require. So he said, there's no right to an abortion. um, And star decisis is no barrier.
1: So I think that that's a, a really concise and clear explanation of what exactly Justice Alito ruled. I want to go back to the law that Mississippi passed because there's sort of two elements to it there's being good and just and right on its own terms, but there's also the element of of legal strategy and mm-hmm. I, I know that these have been often um, somewhat uh, private uh, rarefied mm-hmm. conversations for the past 20 to 30 years because it it really did take a very careful stepwise process to get mm-hmm. to this point but I was hoping you could sh- shed some light on what it was about the Mississippi law specifically that mm-hmm. that made people think this is the one this this is what we mm-hmm. we send up the chain what did the law do and why was it the right choice?
0: Absolutely. That's a great question. And I should mention that ADF, uh, long before I arrived, uh, helped Mississippi legislators uh, with the law um, and drafted and with its passage. Um, and I think the 15-week law was really ingenious for a couple of reasons. Um, at the time in 2018, when the law was passed, Justice Kennedy was on the court. Um, and Justice Kennedy um, had authored uh, the opinion in Gonzalez versus Carhartt or Carhartt 2. And in that opinion, uh, the court had identified Several interests uh, that states could legitimately consider um, when protecting life. Uh, so those three interests were, were obviously the unborn life, uh, also the health of the mother, uh, and then third, the integrity of the medical profession. And so this 15 week law is really tailored to protect all three of those interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, as we've discussed, um, you know, at 15 weeks, uh, their babies have undertaken a tremendous amount of development. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gonzalez, the court, said that at 12 weeks uh, the baby has fully taken on the human form. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that uh, in an ultrasound of a baby today. and um, health and life of the mother. Um, abortion in- risk increased dramatically um, between the 8th and 18th week of pregnancy uh, for women. So the Mississippi legislature noted those risks that increase with gestational age. Um, and then finally most abortions at 15 weeks take place through a procedure called D and E abortion. Um, and this is dilation and evacuation abortion, which in The baby is literally torn limb from limb um, and bleeds to death. And so uh, the Mississippi legislature detailed this um, and said this was an additional reason uh, to prohibit abortions. Uh, We don't want the medical profession to have to perform those sorts of things um, at this age. So those, I think, combination of factors that the court has said were important uh, is why they arrived at the 15 weeks.
1: Mm -hmm. And so it was tailored to a court where where Anthony Kennedy was still on and also Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Mm so- in your mind, uh, would would we have gotten a similar decision as we did today if if the court had kept the composition it did at the time the law was drafted? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, that's that's fascinating. And so, what what happened? The the Mississippi law gets passed. What happens after that? What do the courts say uh, in terms of immediate actions they take, and and what do the conservative legal movement Mississippi? Attorney General's office and an ADF and yourself start to think about in that moment.
0: So um, the Jackson Women's Health Organization filed suit the same day the law was passed. Yeah. Um, so challenged okay. it right away. It went to the district court, and the district court opinions in this case is worth a read. Um, it's really dismissive of Mississippi's interest. It actually accuses the legislature of simply gaslighting about women's health um, <laughs> mm. and impugns really bad motives uh, to the and Mississippi, this was a Mississippi
1: legislature. Dis- district court.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Federal district court. Yeah. At,
1: in in a state like Mississippi, you would assume. Yes. Conservative judge or something like that. No, nope, nope.
0: <laughs> not in this case. Yeah, um, so it goes up to the Fifth Circuit, um, and interestingly, the Fifth Circuit uh, also strikes down Mississippi's law, and they say basically that their hands are tied. Mm-hmm. Um, that under Roe and Casey and later cases, states cannot protect life until viability, which is about twenty-two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, no matter what science says about a baby's development, no matter how compelling a state's interest mm-hmm. in life or medical profession or health of the mother, you know, no dice until mm-hmm. 22 weeks. Um, Judge Jim Ho writes a really good concurrence in which he says, you know, my hands are tied by Roe, um, but Roe was wrongly decided. Mm-hmm. Um, and then comes a really interesting part of the case. Um, the Mississippi uh, petitions for a cert, um, which is uh, an ask of the Supreme Court to take the case and to review it. And the case sits on the docket for about a year. Wow. Um, Which is really unheard of. It just kept getting rescheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled.
1: And this would have been between what window of time?
0: So it would have been, let's see, April of 2020, I believe, uh, through almost that next year. Okay. And in the meantime, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett um, is nominated and confirmed, um, which is you just said earlier is a huge shift um in views on abortion from Justice Ruth Bader-Ginsburg um to Justice Barrett. So after Justice Barrett is confirmed, uh the court goes ahead and grants cert in the case. Um and that means that at least four justices voted to hear the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting issues in the case is that um, you know Justice Ginsburg was on the court uh, at the time period when Mississippi petitioned for certiorari and pr- asked the court to hear the case, and so Mississippi's cert petition pointed out um, both that Roe was wrong, Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, um, and also that the 15-week law you know should be upheld regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of sort of two grounds there. Um, then the Supreme Court granted cert um, with Justice Barrett. So there's a real strict strategic decision to be made at that point by mississippi you know do we sort of ask the court just to uphold our law uh, mm-hmm. just uphold mississippi's 15-week law or do we say you know we actually need to overrule roe Ro- Ro versus wade
1: <laughs> yeah and so uh you guys it seems like took the latter um to to overturn roe versus wade walk me through you know you, you've said uh the 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 party that was bringing the suits against mississippi was mm-hmm. was the uh, jackson women's health organization um yeah. uh you know wh- when what's the other side of that coin what 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 are the entities that at that point are activated to defend mississippi's law how are others able to help what's the actual you know Who's involved in bringing this case mm-hmm. forward? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So there's a, a whole host of uh, interested pro-life organizations that served as the in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were 81 amicus briefs on the pro-life wow. side, which is amazing—the most ever—and <laughs> yeah. um, also the first time that there have been more pro-life amicus briefs uh, than uh, pro-abortion briefs. Mm-hmm. So, so that mm-hmm. was fantastic. And one mm-hmm. of our uh, vice presidents, Brett Harvey, coordinated that effort. So, yeah. so that was fantastic. Um, and then ADF has, as I mentioned, you know, been worked closely with Mississippi since the law was. Was drafted and passed. And so a team of us went down to Mississippi in April of last year okay. um, and uh, were able to visit with them sort of about strategy and those sorts of things. And this trip is, is really special to me because at this time, our uh, now 20-month daughter, uh, Abigail, was six months old. Old mm, and wow. so ADF is really great about allowing attorneys to bring their babies with them if they're if they're little. So Abigail flew down to Mississippi with me. We had a you know layover in Atlanta and we arrived. <laughs> she was exhausted and angry, um, and uh, my babysitter wasn't there yet. So so she goes to this meeting and you know we're trying to discuss you know what's the best strategy for this case and you know what are the individual justices' views. At that time, a lot of people didn't know what Justice Kavanaugh uh, might think about abortion. He hadn't had many cases at the D.C. Circuit. Um, everyone who judge I should say bear it It as pro-life personally um, but you know will she go all the way in row was a big question Um, so just thinking through all of those sorts of issues um, and Abigail was was asleep uh, in her (laughs) stroller until she wasn't (laughs) and she screamed really loudly Um, but but there there was also something really special and kind of tangible about the fact of having Mm -hmm. um, you know Abigail with me Um, at the time we're we're Considering this case that might have the potential of overruling Roe versus Wade and allowing every state um, to protect Abby, and, and I've said it before, but you know she's gorgeous, of course, because yeah. I'm biased. Yeah. Um, but you know she's curly headed and round cheeked, um, but at the same time, she's not any more precious or any more loved by God than any other baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this Dobbs decision had the potential at that point, And we, we've seen it today to allow states to protect every child. And, mm-hmm. and so that was was really neat to be there discussing Dobbs uh, with Mississippi, uh, with Abigail.
1: Yeah, it's a unique uh, sort of moment, right? Because, you know, some narrow, wonky admin law case. It's yeah. very abstract. You don't yeah. see it. And, you know, mm-hmm. had to have been very personal for everyone involved.
2: Yeah, this is one of the things that I told my wife. Mm-hmm. Let's see. It was last Friday, is it only been a week? Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, exactly. um, but uh, when I went home last Friday mm-hmm. and talked with my wife about it, you know, she's uh, 22 weeks along yeah. now. And I told her, I said, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like, and we're also having a daughter, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, I feel like, you know, when Jesus and John the Baptist yes. were leaping for joy in the womb, yeah. like, and my wife started crying. Oh, I, yeah. Sorry for exposing <laughs> like this. But, um, you know, it's, it's really exciting to think about all the people that, um, my daughter will be friends yes, with that, that, um, you know, may not have existed otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think something worth touching on um, is the difference between um, the Mississippi law and laws in other states like Texas, I think is the other one that's most mm-hmm. frequently talked about. What made the case in Mississippi so special? Like, why was it not the Texas case that was the one that went up to the Supreme Court?
0: So the Texas case took place after Mississippi. So Mississippi okay. had already granted cert um, in that case. And the, the issue before the court in the Texas case was sort of a procedural one about, you mm-hmm. know, can states direct certain litigation to state courts first mm-hmm. uh, and that sort of thing. So the the challenge there, um, because of the way the law was structured, was actually to the procedure. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, so here, the the real question um, was does Roe disallow abortions, um, all the way up until viability? Um, mm-hmm. you know, no questions, mm-hmm. no considerations the state can have would matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing I really, uh, commend Mississippi on. Um, as I mentioned, we went to Mississippi. Um, I was able to, to help them, uh, throughout the case. And, and one thing they were always really clear on is that we represent the people of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. and the people of mississippi want to protect life and so we're not going to take some middle ground and, and just go for an incremental approach mm-hmm. um we're going to ask the court to overrule Roe. uh it's absolutely wrongly decided um the people in mississippi think it's wrongly decided um and, and we should should you know ask the court to do the right thing
2: yeah well it's a relatively like ballsy thing to do too <laughs> for like a for for a small state actually we've seen this twice with the um we saw it, too, with this uh, West Virginia versus the EPA, mm-hmm. uh, where some of these smaller states, yes. I just bought a house in West Virginia, so I'm like, <laughs> I love it. Yes. you know, <laughs> very, very excited about this. But where some of these smaller states mm. will basically look at the the federal government and spit in mm. their eye like, <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't do that.
1: Yeah. Um, final question, just on the the particular reasons why, why this was selected. Was there a, a major difference, you think, certainly at the time, you know, a, a very small C conservative approach would have made sense especially with Anthony Kennedy still on the court but do you think if the case that had gone up to the court had been say a challenge to a heartbeat law or something do you think we would have gotten a meaningfully different result or, mm. or just curious is your game theory on that
0: that's a good question so I'm I'm not sure like the court was really clear which I find so heartening that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided like yeah. you've got five solid votes for that mm-hmm. and, and so I would hope their decision wouldn't matter based mm-hmm. on the law Um, you know Roe would be no more rightly decided mm-hmm. if, if you're looking at a six-week law than an mm-hmm. 18-week law.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, one, or 15-week law, I should say. One thing that's interesting um, is that the viability line, again, 22 weeks or so, mm-hmm. uh, I think some babies have survived at 21 weeks. Um, but a number of states have passed pain-capable bills at either 20 weeks, um, some at 18 weeks. Um, and a lot of those bills have not been challenged. Um, I, I think uh, on the idea that that maybe um, Planned Parenthood and others thought, you know, well, maybe, you know, it's pretty hard for, for courts to say, you know, <laughs> A baby can feel pain um, and yet still states can't protect them. Yeah. Uh, so they did challenge the 15-week law, but we're not challenging pay-capable bills around 20 weeks.
1: Interesting. And just minor thing. Was that uh, center that that challenged the law? Is that a Planned Parenthood affiliate or just an independent abortionist? Or what was I it? should know that. I'm not sure, yeah. actually. Yeah. It's the
0: only abortion clinic in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure.
1: And has it been torn down? It's gone now?
0: <laughs> you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so- um,
1: so now going to, to this final stage of the process where where the case was before the court, the arguments mm-hmm. have been decided. You've been on the other side of the picket fence, so to mm-hmm. speak, inside the Supreme Court itself. I'm very curious what your kind of read of what the atmosphere when a case of such mm-hmm. importance uh, comes before the court. What's that like inside mm-hmm. the building? And I'm, I'm sure that um, I'd be curious as to your thoughts on the leak and everything as well. But, but what do you think it was like there when, you know, basically... 50 years of, of, uh, you know... Super precedent was at risk of being overturned. I mean, how, <laughs> how 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 would you how would you imagine that that conversation went internally?
0: Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. And, d- and to be clear, I don't think there is such a thing as super precedent, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. um, but yeah, Justice Breyer might. Yeah. Um, and and so I think you know one thing I was encouraged by is uh, not too long ago Justice Sotomayor um, was giving a talk and complimented Justice Thomas. Um, very well deserved compliments. Uh, Justice Thomas knows the name of everyone in the building. Yeah. Um, he mm-hmm. knows about their families. He knows about their kids. He asks you know how How's your son doing in college? How's your daughter doing with, you know, whatever ailment? Um, so she went ahead and went out of her way to to compliment him. So I'm hoping that means that the. The court is still collegial mm-hmm. um, it certainly was when i clerked there in 2007 i mean we had some big cases we had heller and, and some other cases that provoked tensions mm-hmm. um, but but i think bro was unique mm-hmm. um, and i think we saw from the leak that the tensions were especially high mm-hmm. um, at the supreme court The the leak was egregious mm-hmm. uh, there were a few outlets that seemed to say you know this is ordinary course it's happened before but that, that's simply not true
1: yeah, yeah as a clerk before yeah. i mean would it Would it even have occurred to you? Oh, my gosh.
0: Absolutely (laughs) not. No, we were terrified. In (laughs) fact, um, as a clerk, one of the sort of nice things is you get to take the other justices to lunch, Mm -hmm. um, which means you take them to lunch and pay for their lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's kind of a funny setup. Um, But during those conversations, sometimes you would be at a restaurant not too far from Capitol Hill and the justice would want to engage in conversations about a case um, and as clerks, you're like terrified, like someone <laughs> might overhear. Yeah. Um, so, so no, absolutely. I think, um, it is a tremendous, you know, honor to work at the court mm-hmm. as a clerk and there's a sense of trust and, and no, I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine most people would ever consider something like that.
2: And do you think that that trust is kind of permanently broken because of, because of what's, what's happened?
0: I hope not. Um, I certainly damaged. Yeah. Um, cause again, nothing like that's happened before.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, these the, these arguments are brought before the court, and and you know that they're engaging in deliberation. When the leak happened, what did you guys think? Do do you guys think that the leak changed anything about about the final opinion that you got? How were you guys thinking about it at the time that it came out? I mean, it, it it's gotta have been. You know, of all the planning you could do, that's that's the kind of wrench that you wouldn't even anticipate. I mean, what, what was that day like for you guys?
0: Yeah. So so absolutely a shock, um, yeah. I think, to everyone uh, involved in the litigation. You know, a good shock in the sense of, of we knew that at least initially there were it came, five It came in
1: like an evening on a weekday yes, too, right? Yes, so you yeah. were probably just scrolling on your phone exactly. and suddenly like, the notifications. Yeah,
0: so, <laughs> yeah, your phone blows up. Yeah. And, Um, And so we knew there were five initial votes to overrule Roe. um, Didn't know where the chief was at. Pretty certain that there were three dissents. Um, But again, as, you know, Mississippi said at the time, you know, we just await the Supreme Court's opinion. So as a Mm -hmm. litigator before the court, that's really all you can say. You're hopeful um, that the draft opinion uh, will or the final opinion will look a whole lot like Mm -hmm. the uh, uh, draft opinion. Um, But I think, you know, shocked at the leak, um, encouraged by the initial votes, hoping they would stay the same. And I think the chief justice had a really good response when he said, you know, Uh, The court will go forward to do its job. Um, This uh, leak and intimidation won't change our process at all.
1: Mm -hmm. And what's that process like of an opinion being generated inside the court? Again, this is something you have unique insight into having having clerked there. How did these things come about just for our listeners?
0: Absolutely. So um, after the Supreme Court hears oral argument, which it did on in Dobbs on, I think it was a Wednesday, December 1st. So that Friday, December 3rd, uh, the court would have gathered in a conference room um, just to the justices. They would have discussed the case and took an initial vote. Uh, The justice in the majority would then have had the opportunity, the most senior justice in the majority, so the the longest serving, would have had the opportunity to assign that case. Um, In this case, the the decision was assigned to Justice Alito. Mm -hmm. Um, And who
1: would have done that assigning? Would it have been Justice Roberts or Justice Thomas?
0: I think it would have been Justice Roberts because it's okay. a vote to affirm. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, on, on possibly more narrow grounds mm-hmm. for, for the chief. Um, and so Justice Little would have Taken that opinion, um, went back and spoken with his clerks, and they would have dived in. Yeah. And you know, spent you know, they were already very familiar with the case, but dived into all of the cases. Uh, started writing and drafting uh, from the leak. We know that the, an opinion was circulated from Justice little's chambers in February, and that goes out to all of the justices. Uh, the best thing you can hear uh, as a law clerk working for a justice is just two words join me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that means that, that another justice has joined the opinion without any requested changes. Mm-hmm. Um, more often than not, uh, the justice will come. Come back and say, you know, could you change this wording or that wording? Or I'm not sure; I quite agree with the way you characterize that case. Mm-hmm. Or you know, what about this argument? So there'll be some back and forth, even among the justices who agree with the decision and in, in most of the writing. Um, you might also see concurrence circulating, uh, as in this case, we know Chief Justice Roberts has a concurrence, Justice Kavanaugh has a concurrence, um, and then at some point in that process, you'll get a dissent, um, and the dissent will circulate. Then the majority will respond to the dissent, and back and forth mm-hmm. um, until they get the final opinion.
1: And so walk us through those concurrences both Justice Thomas's, which, which seems to maybe go further than the opinion, and then mm-hmm. Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Roberts's. Um, what, what do you think Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh's holdups were? What, what were they trying to say in those concurrences that that, that the majority opinion um, did not capture in their view?
0: So I think the great thing about Justice Kavanaugh's opinion is he joins the majority opinion in full. Mm-hmm. So it is clear that states have the authority um, to regulate abortion and that those laws are subject only to rational basis review. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means Give states a lot of authority to protect life. As Justice Salito says, it's a legitimate interest to protect life at all stages of development. So that is a huge, huge development um, for, for pro life states um, until. Fr- last Friday, yeah. Um, you know, states couldn't protect life until 22 weeks. Um, now they can protect it much earlier uh, because of that standard. Um, Justice Kavanaugh goes on to sort of mention some of the areas that might come up. He talks about interstate travel, and he doesn't think states would be able to forbid someone from going to a state to obtain an abortion. Um, he talks about a few things like that, sort of laying out some some different wrinkles. Um, Justice Thomas talks about his li- uh, long standing position um on the due process clause. He says, you know, it's an oxymoron moron. Uh, it's not the substantive due process clause. It's the due process clause. Um, and I think he would root some of these rights, not not abortion, but some of the rights that we see coming out of the due process clause in the privileges and Immunities Clause. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would sort of reconceptualize how it is the court goes about um, these sorts of inquiries um, as an original matter.
2: Mm-hmm. And we saw a lot of bellyaching about that in some of the other cases that he mentioned, like mm-hmm. Obergefell. Sure. Um, how likely do you think Something like that is, I mean, as far as I can recall, I don't think any other justices joined his concurrence. So uh, how likely do you think something like that is?
0: That's correct. No other justice joined uh, Justice Thomas concurrences and uh, concurrence, and the majority was at pains. I think it's three or maybe even four times. Um, the the majority points out that abortion is different from all of these other cases. It's different mm. than contraception. It's different than marriage, uh, for two reasons. Um, and first is that abortion takes the life of an innocent third party. Um, so there's no other uh, case, uh, no other right the Supreme Court has recognized that it allows for the destruction of a human life. So the court mm. says that again and again. Um, they also mention that. You know, the analysis is, is, was Roe rightly decided? um, And then what about stare decisis? And Alito points out that stare decisis might be different for those other cases as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting. In the range of possibilities with the court that we have now um, of what the opinion could have been, I mean, there's there's a world where a much narrower opinion, much like the Roberts concurrence comes out, is there a world where there was anything much better? Was this a nine out of 10, 10 out of 10? How, how have you thought about, you know, on the scale? I, I guess how well you guys did your job. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so I really think, you know, credit to Justice Lido. I think it's a 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many good things about his opinion. He goes through every conceivable basis for a right to an abortion in the Constitution and just dismantles mm-hmm. that. You know, we talk about the history. Just uh, he mentions that the history cited in row was either wrong or irrelevant. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's so yeah. nice uh, for that to be corrected because that's mm-hmm. been a longstanding sort of uh, annoyance and frustration of the pro-life movement is the history yeah. in Roe was just wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes through every basis. He walks through stare decisis and shows why it's not compelling. Um, he gives uh, the standards rational basis review. The same that applies to every other law, every other area of the law that's not uh, regulated by the Constitution. The states are allowed, uh, through the normal democratic processes, to work through. Um, and as Justice Ginsburg said, Roe halted that process by us- usurping uh, the judicial or excuse me, the, the Democratic role um, and arrogating that uh, th- to the judiciary. Um, one of my favorite things about Justice Alito's opinion is that he notes that 55% of women voters, uh, of voters in Mississippi are women. And so now those women actually have a say yeah. um, in what the abortion policy is uh, in Mississippi. And so that's a huge one for democracy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um what, um what do you think this opinion says about the... The long history of of legwork done, I guess, by the conservative legal movement to to maybe write the the excesses of the Supreme Court in the late 20th century. Um, Does it feel like this is the end of the beginning? Is it are we just getting started? I mean, how, how are you thinking about maybe that that grander timeline for for writing our jurisprudence. You
0: know, I think there's a, just a huge thank you to, to so many people who've worked tirelessly, academics, um, but especially the people that have prayed mm-hmm. and marched and just, you know, told their state legislators we want to protect life over and over again, mm-hmm. um, even as federal courts struck down law after law after law. And so people, as you said, have been engaged in this effort for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also been a lot of legal groundwork. Um, mm-hmm. I mentioned that, that, you know, even Justice Kagan said we're all originalists now. <laughs> um, and it's this, it's it's, it's a huge shift if you go back to look at a constitutional decision written in the 1960s or the 1970s sometimes the text of the constitution may be mentioned in the last paragraph or or maybe not Mm. at all and so it is really democracy reinforcing uh, that the courts today look at the text first they Mm. may not always adhere to it um, but at least under current doctrine they're forced to confront that Um, and as Justice Scalia said so capably that means that we're governed uh, by our elected representatives and not my nine judges so
2: with things Like the the Kavanaugh concurrence where he's talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, potentially having a law against traveling across state lines to Mm -hmm. to get an abortion. Where does the pro-life movement go next? I mean, not just state level, but nationwide.
0: So I think right now we are seeing a rash of challenges um, to state laws. And there's a couple of categories of state laws. There's what are known as trigger laws. Mm-hmm. So these are laws uh, that states have passed basically saying, you know, we know Roe says we can't protect life, um, but we really want to. Um, <laughs> we, we as citizens think life is important in this state. And so if and when Roe is overruled, we'll have this trigger law that will come into effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that category of laws. There's also categories of laws that predate Roe. Um, so a number of states. States have laws that were on the books uh, before Roe. Um, the state legislatures never got rid of them; uh, mm-hmm. they still believed in life, uh, so those laws are on the books. Um, and then there's also state laws that are enjoined uh, by federal courts. Mm. So uh, states uh, have been going in and asking federal courts to undo the injunctions. I think Alabama actually got one on Friday, nice. which is fantastic. So I think they were the first state. Um, and then, but but we see a rash of challenges uh, in uh, Michigan, for example. Um, ADF has intervened um, to help. Defend a pro-life law that the governor says is no longer valid. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Different uh, pro-abortion groups have filed suit all over the country to challenge these laws. I think that's really the first uh, sort of battleground.
1: Aren't there liberal states that have abortion bans on the books that they never undid in statute that just got overturned by Roe v. Wade?
0: I think that's possible. I'm not aware of one. Uh, A lot of the really pro-choice states uh, in the recent uh, months have been doing just rafts of really liberal legislation. So you saw a bill um, in California, for example, that permitted even perinatal deaths or, Mm or forbid inquiry into perinatal deaths defined to include 70s after birth, which is, is just crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So a number of the states have, have gone even further. Um, there mm-hmm. could still be a, you know, a blue state out there with a, with a good law, but yeah. I'm not sure.
1: And that was the point of the leak, yes. right? Is to give these yeah. states time, uh, especially so that it didn't become as much of an election issue, um, getting closer and closer to the general election, which is why it's such a horrific usurpation of the rule of law for, for that leak to have happened. Um, how uh, are you thinking about the court's appetite for more litigation i mean it seems like justice kavanaugh wishes that another life-related case never comes to the court again do you think that's accurate i mean do do you think that there's going to be challenges all the way up to the supreme court on major life-related legislation in the next couple years
0: it's possible, you know, mm-hmm. some of these wrinkles, but it's also possible the courts of appeals could handle a lot of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I think if the court would have taken a middle ground, um, for example, and, and adopted Chief Justice Roberts reasonable opportunities to obtain an abortion. You know, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, um, we we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that case or if an opinion like that, a mm-hmm. case would have ended up at the court um, in no time flat. Mm-hmm. So I think this case does the best or. The Dobbs majority does the best job it can Mm -hmm. of signaling like this is an issue for the states. Um, It's subject to rational basis review that gives the states an awful lot of authority and ability to protect life. Mm -hmm. There may be some lower court judges who who protest and and, and find ways to to stop these laws. But but overall, um, you've got a lot of authority for the states Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, in the days after the opinion. uh, There were clips going around of AGs signing stuff. I think your home state uh, attorney general did mm-hmm. did something. W- what what was going on there? What were they exactly doing? What was the, the role of the AGs that suddenly after the Roe decision?
0: So a lot of it was trigger laws. Okay. Um, and so this idea being some states have requirements um, that the AG must certify that Roe, in fact, has been overruled,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, which it clearly was um, mm-hmm. in the Dobbs decision. And so that starts the time period uh, in which the trigger law can be enforceable.
1: Mm-hmm. So what do you think... Uh, Uh, liberal forces in american life are going to to do next i mean do you think they're going to keep trying to take stabs at the supreme court do they recognize that that's sort of folly i know a lot of them are talking about packing the court what what do you think their next line of attack is going to be because for the first time it feels like in 60 years they're on the back foot and they are now in the position we were in 50 years ago. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's it's really nice because those who are advocating for pro-abortion stances really now have to advocate against democracy, <laughs> um, which is, is kind of a tough position to be in. Yeah. Um, so so I think that is just, uh, you know, a huge writing um, of a wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roe took that out of democratic hands. Uh, here we have it returned uh, to the states and to the people. Um, and, you know, uh, this idea we've talked, uh, we've heard talk about, you know, the Biden- w- recommended that the filibuster be done away with so that they could have uh, federally enforceable uh, abortion rights and those sorts of things mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that will fly either the mm-hmm. filibuster um, or or federal abortion rights
1: mm-hmm. the, the window of time that you were in law school a clerk and then teaching law was i think mm-hmm. the, the period of time where originalism kind of became the thing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. legal academy couldn't ignore anymore yes. how do you think especially with this case that that is so central in the mind of of, of of the liberal jurists in America. How do you think this is gonna change the culture of the way that constitutional law is taught in law schools? I, I took mm-hmm. a couple of classes in undergrad that were basically identical to intro-con law seminars. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very interesting this this weird position that that law professors have to take. I had a liberal law professor who mm-hmm. unfortunately there there was no way for him to teach con law except on originalist terms, because you start at the beginning yeah. and at some point, it's it's yeah. it's it's funny. I, I have these mm-hmm. concrete memories of basically going through the case history across a variety of issues. And at the end of every case, he'd ask the students, Would you, would you vote to overturn this law or would you vote mm-hmm. to keep this precedent? And there was just so much drop-off over the course of the semester that by the end, there were like only two students in the class that actually thought that any of our existing precedent Mm -hmm. system makes any sense whatsoever. How how are you thinking about how Legal Academy is going to change based on this?
0: That's a really good question. Um, My fear is that if you read the dissent, um, it is really a full-throated endorsement of living constitutionalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And the dissent... You know, forthrightly admits that in 1868, which is the relevant time period, there was no deeply rooted right to an abortion. Um, but they say that doesn't matter, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that is really astounding um, mm-hmm. to say that that a court can take a liberty interest, um, divorce it from history, and come up with a right that mm-hmm. that the framers of the 14th Amendment never would have imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that idea of living constitutionalism, I imagine you'll see some academic sort of trying to buttress uh, that type of thing. Um, I think it's a tough argument to make, again, because as so many others have pointed out, if you do that, then you do really leave it up to nine justices. And that's um, difficult to think. Um, you know, Alexander Hamilton famously called the Supreme Court the least dangerous branch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, yet if we take living constitutionally, constitutionalism seriously uh the court has the final say on so many issues Mm -hmm. um so so i think that's what we'll see we'll start to see the buttressing uh, of living originalism or living constitutionalism i should say um but but yeah i hope that effort is unsuccessful
2: so you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you and your husband met you know while clerking Mm -hmm. at the supreme court did either of you at the time believe that you know within your lifetimes we would we would see this decision made
0: you know, there was certainly hope because you'd had great opinions by Justice Scalia. Yeah. You'd had great opinions back in the day by Justice White. Um, you know, he called it a raw exercise of judicial power uh, that was quoted in Justice Alito's opinion. Um, you had, you know, Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas. Um, you certainly had some really heavyweight um, judicial and academics uh, pointing out mm-hmm. Roe's flaws. Um, but it, it was, I think— um, sort of unthinkable um, but mm-hmm. the places we went to law school and those sorts of things the idea that Roe uh, might seriously be reconsidered I think was unthinkable mm-hmm. uh,
1: what have you made of kind of what the left has been doing to the justices again having been on the inside of that system before it's mm-hmm. just it's got to feel like such a new day and in, in in the norms of this country what, what, do you, what do you make of the intimidation going on
0: it's absolutely horrible uh, and it's illegal like mm-hmm. the the Justice Department should enforce the law uh, which Plainly prohibits uh, attempting to influence um, a pending case, which was clearly the case uh, before Dobbs was decided. Um, I remember, i um, Justice Souter used to, you know, walk over to a bakery um, from the court, and and it's unconscionable that justices can't do that nowadays without mm-hmm. fearing uh, for their lives and safety to to protest at someone's home uh, with young children like the Justice Barrett. That's mm-hmm. um, really unconscionable and, and should be uh, is illegal. Should be enforced.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you to make some predictions. (laughs) Uh, What do you think the landscape of the legality of abortion looks like? but 2030? I mean, or yeah. maybe maybe even shorter time horizon, five years from now. How do you think this is going to settle when states are actually given the chance with the political climate we have mm-hmm. right now to, to decide these things democratically?
0: You know, I'm hopeful. We're, we're already seeing some states are going to be really pro-life, mm-hmm. um, which is huge. Um, we're also going to see some states, uh, a number of state courts have found state constitutional rights to an abortion. Um, but like those, Florida is a good example. Those are based on the federal constitution. They, they decided um, on, on the state constitution, but all the case law uh, is federal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those decisions will be reconsidered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ho-
1: say a little bit more about yes. that. Do they have like their equivalent to the 14th Amendment and it was interpreted similarly to the federal constitution? So now that needs to be wound back? or
0: Yes, exactly. Okay. And in Florida in particular, it's a right to privacy. The, okay. the Florida constitution has a right to privacy and they look to Roe and say that right to privacy includes um, a right to abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but but they don't look actually at what the Florida Constitution means. Um, so I'm hopeful that that Constitution, as well as others, will be revisited. Um, so you'll see some states, um, some uh, you know, state legislators that are allowed to protect life when those bad Supreme Court decisions uh, go to the wayside. I'm also hopeful, and this this may be more of a, of a stretch, but you know. One of the things the chief justice mentioned in oral argument is that American abortion law under Roe uh, is less protective of life than all but a handful of countries in the world. Mm. And actually six. Um, and the United States is in the same company as China and North Korea in allowing <laughs> abortions up until the moment before birth. Um, and some of these liberal states have passed laws in the last few months allowing that. Um, so my hope is that, you know, once maybe the political uh, dynamic of Roe, uh, you know, it's recognized that Roe is is overruled, Mm -hmm. um, that even some of those liberal states will reconsider some of those policies and and decide that life deserves more protection. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, we should do like a man on the street thing, like we should go out (laughs) in front of the Supreme Court and ask people like who do you think has laws like the United States on abortion Mm -hmm. and then just hold out the microphone. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, or show them an ultrasound. Like, yeah. it's amazing. There's a great brief um, in the Dobbs case, and it shows an ultrasound in 1973. And, you know, you really can't see much. Smudges, yeah. Yeah. And then they show an ultrasound today at 15 weeks, and the baby is clearly visible. Mm.
2: Well, it's amazing. We had our first at 12, I think, mm-hmm. 12 weeks. We found out really early on because my wife was extremely sick immediately. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> so, so thing. it's awful sometimes. Uh, yeah. So we knew pretty early on. Uh, and, like, Showing it to like I remember the first time I showed it to you, like people point at it and they're like, yeah. "Oh, that's the head, that's the feet." Cool, yeah. you know, like <laughs> it's twelve weeks old, yeah. and they're like, "Oh yeah, I know exactly what that yeah. is." Like it looks like a
0: person, person. absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the technological
1: side of this is is so interesting, and I and I think ultimately it's it's going to be the le- the leading indicator for where culture and law both go mm. is both as fetal viability, the age of fetal viability just. Plummets as it will with medical technology as time goes on, as what is happening inside the womb becomes so much more clear. I I, I think that th- this is one one area and there's not a ton where, where technology truly just is is going to be helpful for us. The veil of ignorance is so much of what the left has to rely on in order to to have the laws that they do, and it's why they get very upset when you explain what the abortion procedure is. It's why they get very upset when you describe what a baby uh is like developmentally at very young ages um i guess that's the the next layer to this is what do you think the the cultural sociological outlays of this are going to be i mean it's gonna mm. it's gonna scramble a lot of the way that people just go about life in the united states in terms of how they interact with other sexes and you know the sexual revolution all those elements too mm. what's what's your predictions there
0: so, so I think the immediate effect, um, of Roe will be that we'll have more babies who are born. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a huge sort of rallying cry and responsibility for the pro-life movement. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, there's thousands of pro-life centers currently, mm-hmm. um, that do a fantastic job, but we've got to go do even more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one study from the human coalition that shows that uh, some 70, I think 75% of women, uh, who, t- end up having abortions, say they would have chosen life or to parent if their circumstances would have been different. Mm -hmm. And we just have to change that. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to be a culture that promotes life um, in the womb uh, and beyond and really come alongside Mm -hmm. these women.
1: There's kind of concern trolling that the left likes to put forward is that, oh, you're not pro-life, you're pro-birth. And I Mm -hmm. have always found myself in a funny position because even though I have all sorts of heterodox views on economics and what maybe government can do to help families mm-hmm. thrive. Like, I, I want to defend the right of even a pro-life libertarian who doesn't think the state has those roles to be pro-life. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's wrong to kill babies. Full stop. Period. Bad. Um, mm-hmm. But what do you think some of the next stages of the pro-life movement are in terms of creating an America that is more friendly to children? Obviously, the most extreme version of unfriendliness to children is killing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what do you think some of those next steps are that that you're excited mm-hmm. to see the pro-life movement maybe start to refocus its attention when it's kind of done the cleanup and it's like okay we we've banned mm-hmm. abortion in this state we have a thriving pregnancy resource center network mm-hmm. What else should they be working on?
0: Well, the pregnancy resource centers are going to be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're going to need more help, um, Mm -hmm. more resources, more time. I love the quote. I think it's by Mother Teresa that says, you know, I can do what you can't and you can do what I can't. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that that we all have something to contribute, uh, whether it's our time, whether it's volunteering, uh, whether it's financial resources. Um, I think churches have a huge part to play. They can start preschools. Um, The church we attend in Missouri has this great uh, preschool that's located in a Mm -hmm. lower income area and it's free. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just this, this wonderful opportunity, uh, for families, uh, to have a, a great preschool, um, that's provided by the church. Um, I, you know, I think we're going to need to see Texas has some great programs. Mm-hmm. It's a, both public and private. Um, they've got fathership initiatives, fathership classes. Um, they really encourage, uh, the dads to take part of this as well as, you know, it takes two. Uh, yeah. and, um, in addition, you know, they've got educational programs for expecting moms. They've got job training programs for, expecting moms and really just this whole panoply of resources to come along. So so I think, you know, churches uh, definitely have a role to play. The pro-life community definitely has a role to play as well as government.
1: Mm-hmm. And looking at the uh, the future of, you know, social conservatives that are involved in the legal profession, what do you mm-hmm. think some of the next fights on that front are? Because, um, you know, the pro-life movement more broadly is mm-hmm. going to have plenty to do. But for people who are lawyers with lawyerly things to do, yes. what are the next couple of fights on the horizon it looks Mm -hmm. like we have a court that's eager to impose sanity or at least will do so Mm -hmm. if you drag them kicking and screaming (laughs) Mm -hmm. what are some of the other cases that you're hoping uh court takes a takes a look at (laughs) you
0: know i think just um out of the the abortion context we're going to see um the administrative state and sort of come into high gear already hhs and biden President Biden have suggested that there's a role for the federal administrative agencies to play um, in the abortion context. Um, and so I, I think that's a huge question, mm-hmm. both from a sort of normative perspective mm-hmm. and then also as it applies to abortion. Um, there's this, this huge question as to whether administrative agencies should be making decisions, you know, imposing cap and trade on the country. Yeah. Um, in West Virginia versus EPA, the, the court yeah. said no. Um, that's a, yeah. the major question. If Congress is going to delegate that to an agency and there's a big question as to whether they can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But if they're going to, they need to say so clearly, Mm -hmm. um, which they didn't do in West Virginia versus EPA. Um, Arguably the same thing with abortion. If you're going to you know, say that the FDA can regulate abortion, uh, certainly we would think uh, that Congress would have to say so clearly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think those sorts of issues uh, are going to be sort of front and center. Um, The the power of the administrative state, um, if there's some limits to what Congress can delegate, uh, those sorts of things uh, as well. Religious liberty issues, um, uh, ADF uh, filed an amicus brief in a... School choice case called Carson versus Mencken,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, which was a huge win for school choice. And in that decision, um, the chief justice said that Maine, the state of Maine, it's, it has a very rural school district. So a number of the public high schools uh, don't, or excuse, a number of the school districts don't have public high schools. Um, so they say you can send your kid anywhere. You just can't send them to a religious school. Or at least mm-hmm. a school that's too religious. Like, you can be <laughs> religious in name only, but you can't actually teach religion. Yeah. Uh, so the Supreme Court said, no, that's discriminatory. Um, mm-hmm. But the state of Maine doubled down. Mm-hmm. And the attorney general issued an opinion and said, actually, you can't send them to a religious school if they have traditional views on marriage. Uh, so, so, yeah. So, so they <laughs> yeah, all get yes. the rub. That's what exactly. they're actually after. So, so those fights are on the horizon as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty funny to see you know them show their cards and and say what they actually mean on this stuff. I think I also saw something crazy that the Biden administration is talking about. Oh, federal enclaves can like put up abortion pickup trucks or something something crazy like that and yeah, you can I do mean, it
2: on like uh, military bases or on like native american reservations or whatever yeah. that's yeah. what they were saying and yeah. i think there's
0: serious legal problems with both of those but yeah, but yeah, yeah. you so i've seen those theories
2: yeah so so
1: the fight is not over so you you would yeah. no, no one can can rest on your your laurels um Zolly, where can people keep up to date with with what you're doing? Um, you're not on social media, which is good <laughs> uh, for, for all things considered, but where, where can they keep up with your work, ADF's work and and um and and where should they be paying attention in the months and weeks to come?
0: Absolutely. I really encourage you to go to adflegal.org. Um, it's got information about the Dobbs case, but also a whole host of other cases uh, that ADF is involved in.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule and very um, uh, sudden uh, media frenzy. Um, and thank you for everything you've done for for this case and everything else. Uh, I think uh, the country thanks you for it too.
0: Well, thank you. It's great to be just a small part.
1: We told you guys that that would be very special. Uh, thank you again to Mrs. Holly for taking the time out of her busy schedule to uh, come on. She's had to do a lot of media all of a sudden. Uh, ADF was quite circumspect about the role they were playing in this process until about now, and so um, it's been it's been really exciting for them to get to to take a little bit of a victory lap. Um, it's a lot of hard work, a lot of people, and by no means not just her. And she, she emphasized that point many times during this episode, she played a small part in what was really 50 years of hard work, but, but an important part, I think. And, um, uh, Thank you to her for for coming on and everything that she does uh, for the conservative movement. Um, as always, check out the backlog of this podcast and rate and review it five stars. It really does help us in the rankings. It helps helps us get on incredible guests like Mrs. Holly, um, and will help uh, make sure that that we can continue to bring this podcast to you for for months and years to come.
2: I'm just remembering the review that you read like a week <laughs> or two ago, where the person commented, "I like podcasts." Yeah.
1: You, you, <laughs> The thing that you don't know about it is that the person who commented, I like podcast will actually be on our podcast soon. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, uh, okay. I'll, I'll leave it up to the viewers to guess who that ends up being. Um, uh, but it should uh, it should be a good one. Um, yeah, we, we get a lot of very kind and very funny reviews, um, often in the same, sometimes different. Um, so make sure to uh, do a, a good review and we might read it out on the show. Um anyway guys thank you so much for listening as always we're very grateful that um, you guys tune in every week and and hear what uh, our guests have to say and what we uh, dum-dums have to ask them um, we'll see you guys next week moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.